Thanks for joining SME's Build and Revitalize podcast series on the recent boom in the warehousing and logistics market. I'm your host, Allie Fry. Over the next few episodes, we will talk to business and community leaders about the trends in consumer shopping and how they've created a huge demand for distribution centers. We'll learn about ways communities, developers, contractors, and financial institutions are working together to quickly adapt to the boom and help owners creating facilities in the warehousing and logistics market. We hope you've enjoyed our first podcast series. Today, we'll wrap up with a conversation on financing. We touched on available incentives in previous episodes, and Brett Stuntz, a senior consultant in SME's Environmental Services Group, is here to help us understand these options a bit better. Uh, With over 20 years of environmental consulting and real estate finance experience, Brett has created and delivered innovative gap financing, brownfield, and other environmental solutions to our clients on hundreds of projects. So we'll also talk to Chris Cook. He's the Director of Capital Access for Michigan Economic Development Corporation, or MEDC for short. He'll pick up where Brett leaves off and tell us a bit about programs that are available to help Michigan-based companies who are seeking commercial lending for their development projects as part of some gap financing. Let's jump right in. Brett, we'll start with you. Welcome to our podcast. It's great to be here, Allie. So we know that the warehousing and logistics facilities are developments that states really want to bring to their local communities, both to benefit those communities and for the value of redeveloping brownfield sites. These projects are often developed on larger pieces of land that come with a variety of hurdles, and one of them is definitely financing. That being said, what are the cost issues you see in developing these sites? There are several. You mentioned that uh, the sites are are large, and and so they're often very expensive to acquire. You typically need a lot of contiguous land, and those pieces of land are often in very particular locations, so near a client base or near required transportation infrastructure. So there's not necessarily a lot of supply. And then often in urban areas where uh, it's the, the location is good for, for clients and being close to airports and rail and highways, you're often putting together a lot of parcels. So in the urban areas, you might have had land platted differently for different purposes. And so piece of property that's good for a warehousing or logistics site might have 20 parcels, might have 50 parcels, might have 100 parcels. And so there are a lot of entitlement issues, and that really slows down development. You're dealing with uh, multiple sellers and complicated entitlements processes. And then sites are often more expensive to get pad ready for vertical construction for logistics sites. A lot of the available big sites have significant redevelopment issues associated with them, which is probably why they're available. They can be old industrial sites. They have legacy environmental issues. So you might have vapor intrusion concerns, which really increase the cost if you have to do a a vapor barrier or a subslab depressurization system. And then if the site's been developed previously, you might have a lot of demolition costs. You might have asbestos. Um, You might have soils issues in the ground where previous development or what's left behind has left unstable material that's not 
easy to build on. And then a lot of sites have both of those issues, like landfills, as an example. They're available large pieces of land, but they're just difficult to build on. Another issue for expenses is infrastructure. So the if you have a big site, if it was used either previously for a different purpose or it was unused, it might not have the utilities that, that you need for, for warehousing and logistics. So getting those to the point uh, where they meet the needs of the new development is, is expensive. And similarly with transportation, the in- infrastructure might need to be improved or, or tinkered with to deal with traffic patterns for the new uses, the road requirements, the rail requirements. Yeah, and all those technical issues really pile up when it comes to the cost of a development and that could potentially make it not feasible. So we still see developers developing these sites. What are some of the tools available to deal with financing these issues on a construction project? Yeah, it's tough because all of those things do do pile up and they they really extend the pre-construction period. And that can be a deal killer because it makes it diff- more difficult to finance and more difficult to find working capital to do the architecture and engineering um, that has to be completed to get a viable project. There are several tools that um, are available and it depends really the the type of tool that you're looking at depends on where you are in the process to get things going early on is is the most challenging time probably and and also the time where there are the fewest tools in the toolbox but some municipalities and local units of government will step in particularly if they have sites that are target sites uh, and you mentioned that it's these things are a priority for states and local communities. And so there is uh, some funding for early property assessment, and that's to try and figure out essentially how to solve all those issues and bring properties online. And those tend to be municipalities partially funding pre-development activities through state grants. Once you get a little deeper into the project, uh, there's often more opportunities for things like grants and low interest loans, and those can be targeted to addressing some of the specific issues that we were talking about earlier. So if you have environmental issues, there are state grants and federal grants that can help with assessment, just trying to figure out what am I dealing with and what do I need to do to solve these problems? So those can be really helpful. And then once you get a project engineered and ready to build, then there are other um, types of state and federal grants and low interest loans that can come in closing on construction financing. The last category are tax incentives that offset operating costs and increase the ability to, to service debt and or more likely probably enhance returns on equity investments. So things like tax increment financing, where a portion of the taxes paid after the development is complete are reimbursed to a developer to help offset costs or a tax abatement that just reduces the costs altogether. Or things like economic opportunity zone benefits, um, which can enhance equity investment, make it more favorable to invest in real estate projects and opportunity zones than to leave that equity in in some other investment. 
one of the main things really that's most helpful though is just getting better at solving all of the cost issues. So a lot of that is on the community and the developer side. You know, can you work through those entitlement issues expeditiously? Can you be creative and effective at solving the soils issues, the environmental issues, the infrastructure challenges? All of those tools can be really helpful. Right. So it sounds like not only finding alternate sources of funding, but also looking at the efficiency of the process and maybe the education of the community on these issues is really important. Would you say that that's true? I think it is. The community component is is really important, although often the state and the local unit of government really push for these projects to occur. They tend to be big changes in the neighborhoods where they're being constructed. And there are pluses and minuses generally. And a lot of times the, the redevelopment can improve environmental conditions that can reduce blight. But regardless, there's often a community component where there's through the um, public processes associated with site plan approval or other incentives approval, you have a lot of community engagement. And for a lot of projects, it's a really positive thing, but it also tends to extend the development period and change developments. And, and those things have a cost component associated with them. And one of the things I think that's really important about these costs that we're talking about. These are issues that don't necessarily come with any return on investment. You think about buildings and they cash flow because over time there's an income stream that covers your debt service and provides a return on equity. And so often you can enhance those returns in construction by making a project more feasible by investing to do things like add rentable space. So that would increase income or by investing to provide higher quality rentable space, which would increase rent and income. But if you have soils issues, if you have environmental issues, if you're investing in things like like infrastructure um, or working through complicated entitlement processes, those don't improve the de- ultimate development. They don't increase rentable space. So they're, they're all cost and no enhanced return. And that really makes these types of investments challenging. Yeah, it really produces kind of that gap in your profit versus your initial investment. I agree. It it definitely does. Regarding those gaps in financing, you know, you talked about some tools to help make these projects more feasible. If we're looking at it in terms of, say, a typical range of dollars, when you're looking at redeveloping a site, how large of a gap in your initial investment do you see when you're dealing with these redevelopment sites? Well, it varies, and it really depends on on the sites. Uh, they're substantial, certainly. I think in the pre-development phase, it's it's almost entirely gap because you are trying to get your arms around a project and a piece of land or pieces of land and really figure out what's going on, what what are the conditions that I'm trying to build on, and what do I need to do to engineer these sites properly. And so in the pre-development phase, you're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, could be 50,000, could be 100,000 on a large site, to really do an appropriate assessment and get some preliminary architectural environmental together. There's a tremendous amount of risk there because, again, these sites are complicated and they may not all work out. And so I think that's why there are programs set up often for 
um, communities to try and inventory their brownfield sites and to identify sites of priority and work usually through some kind of cost share with either private development entities or various local unit of governments like counties and cities to try and develop some of this assessment information so that when an entity comes in to redevelop a property, the lift is a little bit lighter. Once you've done that and you have some of the specific conditions identified, then there's typically more grant and loan opportunities available and they can be targeted to those specific brownfield challenges like bad soils or environmental issues. And so those, however, can get into the hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to, to ultimately deal with. So you mentioned, you know, after you get through the initial phase to initially wrap your arms around what are the problems on these sites and you get into the other tools for funding these larger items actually dealing with the issues on sites. Tell us about maybe a recent project where you had to implement some of this type of funding to close the gap in financing. Sure. As an example, we worked on a large commercial refrigeration warehouse project, and this is in the city of Detroit. And so it really hits on a lot of the the problems that that we talked about earlier. So you're dealing with an old city that has a lot of previous uses on the target property. So property assembly is very challenging, multiple sellers, multiple entitlement issues to work through. And then once you get into the ground, you have all sorts of issues. So we had uh, vapor mitigation issues, uh, which we had to, to solve through environmental engineering controls and anywhere from 10 to 20 feet of, of bad soils uh, that had to be over-excavated and, and uh, replaced with specialized foundation systems. And then in that particular site, you know, things always pop up that you don't really expect once you get into the ground, no matter how much assessment you've done. And so there are a couple things that were unique on that site. One is once we uh, were excavating to take care of the bad soils, we actually came across an old sewer that was not on any of the surveys and not on any of the municipal maps. It was actually wooden. It was so old. And so that had to be replaced and rerouted. And then there was also an issue with, with the survey um, and the, the building was actually closer to the, the plan building. The property line was closer to the plan building um, and then had to be, the building had to be offset, I think, by a foot or two. So a lot of times on the older sites, you just have incomplete information because things have accumulated over the years in, in different ways. And so you have to be nimble and responsive during the planning and development phase to, to uh, deal with those. You know, to the other side of it, there was um, Brownfield Tax Increment Financing, a property tax abatement, environmental grant through the state in order to offset the funding gaps. So you mentioned a couple grants and taxes there for this project. Can you tell us a little bit about those and how the application process maybe works for those? And are there any qualifications that developers looking to work on one of these facilities and properties needs to know about? Yeah, that's a really good question, I think, because 
the short answer is that no matter what you're applying for, the process is going to be relatively lengthy compared to the redevelopment process. It puts a lot of priority on identifying the redevelopment challenges associated with the property very early in the development process so that to the maximum extent possible, you can coordinate those applications with the redevelopment process and not extend the development any longer than it, that it would have been without the incentives in place. And so in this particular case, we had utilized a grant through the state of Michigan to address environmental issues on the property. And that process takes about six months to get through. And um, it can be coordinated with the tax increment financing process because part of the tax increment financing process also addresses environmental challenges that the grant might not necessarily cover. But the application is through the state environmental agency. And so you're working with the same people and kind of the similar um, approval process. Concurrent with that, however, in the Brownfield TIF in Michigan is an approval for non-environmental brownfield redevelopment activities. So if you're dealing with bad soils, for example, it's not really an environmental issue, strictly speaking, but but it's a brownfield challenge. It adds cost and uh, difficulty to redeveloping previously utilized sites. Um, so that entails approvals through another state agency over a similar time period, but there's a lot of work on applications and coordination in order to get to to an approval. Um, and we also combined the Brownfield TIF on the project with a tax abatement to maximize the tax incentives on the project. And so that's through the city of Detroit and then the state of Michigan as well. So there's a two-tiered approval process there. And so you try to coordinate all of those things and the combination of the tax abatement and the Brownfield TIF provides the most significant reduction of taxes on the development end um, during the operation of the property and then reduces risk for the developer and allows a developer or a future user to attract equity earlier on in the development because it, uh, an investor can look and say, well, the, okay, you know, the, the risk to me and to my equity here is mitigated a little bit because less of the revenue generated by the operations of the development is going to go into payment on taxes if there are increased costs for the development or lean times when you're trying to find tenants for the project. Those additional layers of revenue will help either fund a rainy day fund or um, go directly to uh, returns on equity and um, offsets to that risk. So Brett, you mentioned several times, hey, we're trying to mitigate this financing risk. What other things can a developer do to help reduce the financing risk uh, when looking at these properties? I think there are probably four main things you can do. One at the very beginning is site selection. So a lot of, of these challenges come up with specific uh, issues that you have to try to figure out solutions for given the specific nature of a site or the past use of a site. And figuring out as early as possible what you're getting into 
and how closely that site aligns with your ultimate goals is huge. You have to at a certain point make some no go and no go decisions. And, and if you can do that effectively, um, then you really, really uh, mitigate a lot of the risk. The second one that we've been talking about quite a bit is maximizing the redevelopment incentives. You know, those those do take a significant amount of time to apply for, and there are costs for applying those to for, for those funds. So understanding what really is available, what realistically is going to come into a project, what can I what can I realistically leverage to to support this this project? And sizing those incentives as they relate to the project that you're going to construct and the construction budget and the otherwise available financing is really important. Um, a third, if you can either at least identify tenants uh, in the pre-development phase and ideally have tenants who are, are locked in, that creates a lot more certainty and future revenue streams for the development and it makes it a lot more attractive for lending institutions to come in. You know, they tend to be the most risk averse. Uh, so if you can uh, identify future income streams, that's going to really, really help them. And then the, the, the last really effective tool for mitigating financing risk is to uh, build a team that knows the type of problems that come up on redevelopment of sites like these and is effective at solving them. And so that typically involves either the municipality or, or the county and also a developer. And there are developers and architects and engineers, and you think about, you know, the entitlement issues and, and the, the financing issues. So you have accountants and attorneys, and there are folks who really specialize in figuring out these types of problems and having a team of people or companies that that can do that and are um, effective at coordinating with one another can really a it reduces risk it also because it delivers constructed sites more efficiently can actually have a bigger impact than all the grants and loans and tax incentives combined you mentioned that it's really helpful financially to have a team that's really knowledgeable in redeveloping these sites and the challenges that are associated with that. If I'm a developer and I'm looking to find some of these experts in my local community or state, where are some good places to find them, professional organizations or other type governmental organizations? Sure. So sometimes if, if you're working in a particular location, the municipality might have experience um, with engineers or general contractors or architects uh, who have um, specific experience in redeveloping sites like these. Most most developers are going to have you know their own network of of uh, firms that that they've dealt with. Um, a lot of times, municipalities go through an RFP or RFQ process to evaluate different proposals or groups who might come in and, and redevelop some of the high priority sites that they've got. And then organizations like the Urban Land Institute, you know, that really looks at previously utilized sites and planning objectives and issues like we're talking about here, where you have 
public priorities on warehousing and logistics sites. They'll have a good network of professional organizations, of attorneys, of lenders, of accountants and engineering firms. Brett, thank you for joining us today. This has been really helpful in kind of understanding the financial challenges that these projects can bring. Thanks, Allie. I enjoyed it. Appreciate your having me. We're honored to have a second financial expert on the show today, Chris Cook. Chris works with MEDC to provide support for Michigan-based companies seeking commercial lending for development projects. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of the warehousing and logistics boom, tell us a little bit about MEDC and the services that it offers. So MEDC offers a variety of services uh, to support uh, both business growth and real estate development, uh, as well as housing our Pure Michigan campaign. Specifically, the programs that I operate assist uh, businesses that are seeking financing, uh, which otherwise may not be available in the market uh, based on a variety of factors. Within the last 10 years, we have developed a number of different programs to support business lending. Uh, And so again, that is specifically for what we would call operating company financing, though we all also are able to support non-owner-occupied facilities when it comes specific to warehousing and logistics spaces. So you mentioned that MEDC does a lot to finance companies that may have some challenges getting finances. We've seen a lot of change in the world in the last year and a half, so I'm sure how those businesses get financing has also changed. What have you seen change in the local business climate and funding for these businesses? So the big issue over the last year really has been just the uncertainty in the market. Banks, other financial institutions really don't like uncertainty when it comes to providing financing. The pandemic and all of the related you know, necessary stay-at-home orders have you know, resulted in a lot of uncertainty and, and has affected certainly some businesses more than others. You know, we have seen online sales, you know, that market drastically increase while a lot of more brick and mortar uh, stores have, have suffered. And so, you know, those types of factors, along with just uncertainty related to uh, COVID numbers in general, the availability of workers, all of that has made it very difficult for businesses uh, to obtain traditional financing you know, over the last, say, 12 months. So if they're not obtaining traditional funding, what's the alternate? Where are they getting funding for their businesses? So there have been, thankfully, a lot of various programs, both at the state and federal level. At the federal level, there was the Paycheck Protection Program, which was rolled out uh, that did provide a, a good amount of support, and, and we saw a lot of businesses, particularly small businesses, being able to take advantage of that. Though you know that funding really was you know, more based on the idea of paying the rent, you know, lights on, rather than expanding or adding or you know taking on new challenges. And so 
you know, those programs along with some similar MEDC funded grant and small business loan programs have been provided over the last year. Again, you know, what we're hoping is, you know, if, as we're coming out of the worst of the pandemic, we hope, you know, we will start to see those opportunities much less for rescue and, you know, more so in, in recovery. And, and really what we're looking at in terms of supporting small business moving forward. You know, you mentioned that there's a lot of state and federal funding opportunities that came out of the pandemic to really, as you said, keep the lights on, keep people at least operating at some minimum level in non-pandemic times and going forward. Can you tell us about some of the state and federal funding opportunities to help with these types of warehousing and logistic developments? Sure. So we have created two programs, one specifically to deal with collateral shortfalls uh, and the other to deal with short-term cash flow shortfalls uh, that have been operating nonstop since that uh, since its launch in 2010. So those programs are immediately available and continue to be available to support you know new financing. You know, one other thing I will mention as a result of the most recent Recovery Act, passed by Congress and signed by the president, there is a significant amount of new federal funding specific for loan enhancement uh, that will be coming likely early in 2022. And we are in the process of evaluating market needs related to that financing. Uh, Our expectation is that the collateral and participation programs that I mentioned will not only continue to operate, but will actually expand. But we're also looking at what other market factors are not being addressed that are prohibiting companies from obtaining financing. And so uh, we're looking actually to expand those efforts greatly over the next six months. So you mentioned earlier on that during the Great Recession, a lot of business owners were having difficulty getting funding because they're more capital assets are getting valued at half their value. You know, with the boom in warehousing and logistics and in other markets, we see construction materials skyrocketing in price. We see construction costs skyrocketing, and maybe they're getting valued at higher than their stable worth. How has that impacted lending going forward and now? Yeah, that has been a a challenge. Uh, New construction costs have obviously increased. But the related value from appraiser standpoint, you know, may not reflect those increased costs. And so that is one challenge we have certainly seen, you know, recently is that the cost of construction or renovation, you know, has significantly increased. Those costs may not always be reflected in the as complete appraisal that that a lender will rely upon. And so in situations like that, that is an instance in which our collateral program would potentially be able to provide support uh, in that it is specifically designed to address that collateral gap between the cost of a project and what a lender may be forced to value that fixed asset 
just based on a third-party appraisal. So can you tell us a little bit about this collateral program and kind of how it works? Sure. So again, this program was launched uh, more than 10 years ago to address collateral shortfalls. You know, we felt at the time, based on seeking feedback from many different private sector lenders, that collateral and collateral deficiency was an area that some other federal programs like SBA and others were not specifically addressing. And so this program was developed to address situations in which, you know, but for a shortfall in collateral, a business would be able to obtain financing. And under normal circumstances, you know, when you have that shortfall, typically the small business will need to either put in more cash to get the loan to value to a, to a level that's required or scale back or frankly cancel the project. And so through this program, you know, the MEDC is actually able to pledge cash uh, that is used as collateral for the loan in addition to the asset. And so, you know, with that additional collateral, the, the lender can uh, cover its loan to value requirement that without forcing that borrower to provide any extra cash or, or scale back the project. That's a huge benefit to local businesses. You know, I know that you work a lot directly with lenders. Can you tell us about how the MEDC program really works and what steps businesses need to take to gain access to the available funding sources? First, we always stress to businesses that they must be working with a lender. Uh, That can be a bank, a credit union, or a CDFI. Uh, that is operating within Michigan. For these programs, it is the lender rather than the small business which will act as the applicant. The business will provide that lender all of the information uh, that is necessary for that lender to make a credit decision. If it is determined by the lender that there is some sort of a shortfall, that can be addressed by one of the MEDC programs. It is the lender that ultimately provides information to the MEDC. We use that to make our decision to structure a credit that will include a program like the collateral support program. And then ultimately it is the lender closing on a loan uh, and then entering into a separate agreement with the MEDC, uh, which allows us to support that transaction. So from a business perspective, there is very little interaction uh, that is required, very little reporting other than what that borrower must provide to the lender. Uh, So we try to keep it uh, very simple from the small businesses perspective. And what we tell them is that, you know, for a small business, if a lender is willing to provide conventional financing, meaning no support from MEDC, SBA, USDA, any of those sources, that is the best option. That is the one that will be the least cost the MEDC programs, like those other programs I mentioned, 
they do not decrease cost of capital. It's not a low interest program, but it, it allows those small businesses to obtain financing that otherwise might not have been available. And really it's largely up to, you know, working with that lender to determine whether it's conventional financing or one of those programs, including potentially the MEDC program, that would be the best fit to address uh, the need, you know, just based on a credit review, uh, you know, by that lender. So, you know, you mentioned in that due diligence phase, you're looking at different markets, different employment needs. And we see a lot of owners and developers investing time, money, and energy into this warehousing and logistics boom. How does MEDC view that development? Um, why is this important right now? So it's important for several reasons. First, you know, we have seen significant increase in online sales, and that, of course, leads to additional warehousing needs. For manufacturing companies, the concept of just-in-time housing uh, results in a lot of need for uh, proximate warehouse space for suppliers. And, you know, MEDC, one of its functions is helping to recruit out-of-state business. And one thing that we have seen is those out-of-state businesses that are looking to locate in Michigan want to move into a building that is already complete and ready to go. They don't necessarily want to immediately come in and have to build something new that may you know, take extra time. Over the last 10 years, we have seen the amount of just available space dwindle to the point where inventory of existing uh, light industrial space is very low. And so we are seeing now a lot of communities as a mechanism of job growth and development of those communities looking at the potential for adding that light industrial space because for a number of different reasons, there is clearly a market demand for it. And demand has far surpassed supply at this point. We see the same thing over here in Ohio where we're working on a project just south of the Cleveland area. We've got a client that's moved into a building. It's already too small for them. They're trying to plan an expansion and other projects as fast as they can while renting warehousing space across town, and they just can't find enough of it. So I think this is going to continue to be, for the next couple of years, a huge boom in getting these spaces up to the number that the market really needs. I mean, do you see that from a funding standpoint in similar light? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there is going to be a significant need for funding. And particularly when you're talking about non-owner occupied space, even speculative builds, those projects are even more difficult to finance from a conventional standpoint. Often lenders look at that collateral from a position that it needs to be devalued more because there's not a specific source of income. In addition, depending on tenant space and, and lease up, you know, there is potentially an uneven you know, cash flow immediately. And collateral and cash flow are two of the areas that you know, all lenders are going to look at first when you know, considering those credits. Uh, and so you know, we feel that the, the two programs we have, uh, again, address those very specifically. It's really a matter of determining 
in those cases, what is the most significant need? Is it a collateral issue or is it a cash flow issue at the beginning until that property really is stabilized and in, in generating income as it is anticipated that it will? Lenders and small businesses really need to know that they have opportunities with organizations like MEDC to bridge their funding gaps as needed. So what's your best advice for these companies seeking these types of funding sources? you have any insider tips? You know, I would really say that, you know, these small business owners, you know, should seek out any resources that are available. You know, there are a lot of different financial services, consulting services that are available, often free of charge. They can really help early on. Also, just really know the options. As we look at things like the MEDC programs, you know, MEDC through, you know, the the collateral and participation programs that I have been mentioning have worked with, I believe it's over 50 different lending organizations in Michigan over the last 10 years. But that doesn't mean that each individual, you know, representative that a person may be speaking to, to be immediately, you know, versed in those programs. You know, it may be a matter of, of having that small business owner or entrepreneur say, well, have, do you know about these MEDC programs? If you don't, why don't you call them, you know, find out if this collateral or this participation program may be something that would help get that lender, um, you know, beyond those concerns that they might be having and, and get them to an immediate yes on providing that credit. And so we do our we do our best and we do a lot of outreach, but we definitely cannot always be in front of every representative from every lender in the state. And so, you know, knowing that these programs and, and frankly, others are an option, be able to present those as alternatives if there is not an immediate, you know, yes from the from the lender. Chris, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with us a little bit today. I hope that this information is helpful to all those small businesses out there that are looking to participating in warehousing logistics or other developments, MECDC has a great program to help them get started. Well, thank you. We appreciate the invitation. Thanks for listening to the Build and Revitalize podcast brought to you by SME. This wraps up our series on the warehousing and logistics market. A special thank you to all of our guests for sharing their insights. I know that I learned a lot and I'm sure our listeners did as well. Be sure to subscribe to the Build and Revitalize podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Check out www.sme-usa.com slash podcast to join the conversation, access show notes, and catch our series on diversity and inclusion in the AEC industry, logistics and warehousing, and many future series. While you're at it, connect with SME USA on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. See you next time.